Through Nicaea, we are in the next section of the creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Um, in this installment of Through Nicaea, we are actually going to focus upon the historical and biblical support. Um, and there's like a couple of aspects of application mixing, but we're not really going to go too much into it um, here because a lot of the applications will be pulled from the next couple episodes as we move into the other topics. Um, so according to Gerald Bray on the historical aspects... The creedal affirmation of this belief that the Son was God from God is an element that predates the Nicene controversy and once more stands as a synopsis of the divine status of the Son as the Word of God sent from the Father's side. It reflects the scriptural sense of the divinity of Jesus as marked in passages such as John 1, 1-2, John 1, 18, John 20, 28, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Colossians 2, 19, and elsewhere. Further, he states that although the first biblical affirmations of the deity of Jesus were meant to emphasize the oneness of the divine power transmitted from the Father to the Son, it was inevitable that as the Christians moved through the second century and more and more into the world of the Greek idioms and experience, that the distinct issues of Jesus' divinity, considered as something as parallel to the divinity of the Father, should have to be considered. It was the Gnostic Christians who first broached that approach with a vision of degrees of Godhead declining down in a cascade of emanations from the first principle and declining in the quality of the Godhead as each divine declension or eon came closer to the material world and away from the supreme transcendence. So remember, you have the transcendent being who is far beyond creation, and then you would have a decree of declining quality in Godhead uh, from these uh, eons or mediaries. Right. So as Gnostic teachings were addressed, the discussions really centered around how Jesus's deity could be understood within monotheism. Right. Uh, so you had the monarchians who attempted to answer this problem with their idea of the father and the son being synonyms for the same person. Uh, and that's the modalistic idea. And this was dismissed, as we noted in earlier episodes, because of the incoherence between the distinctions made in scripture between the father and the son and Logos. Uh, the Arians, in contrast to this, in essence, took the degree of divinity approach in saying that the Word was not God on the same level as the true God. And we talked about that a little bit as well. So the Nicene writers stressed that there can be no degree of divinity, for deity is deity in an absolute sense in regards to monotheism. So within the Creed, we have God from God, which is an affirmation of uh, a more ancient confession, while that which follows would be more um, elaboration upon that, right? Uh, because you have uh, light from light um, and God as light as a common analogy. And so Jesus is light from light in the same sense. He is not a degree less of light. He is the Lord as uh, the light of the world and the light of the Gentiles. Uh, and so he was the light to come into the world according to John for salvation and illumination. So this, of course, is an, an extensive discussion on the use of light in Scripture but it moves us to the creed, light from light, where it points to the relationship between the Father and the Son, where the glory of God is shining in and through the Son, and as we read in John 17, is shared with the Son before the world existed, contra to this idea, this dichotomy between a transcendent being who has 
uh, mediaries who are lesser in degree. True God from true God echoes God from God, but it adds that clarification uh, to the confession in saying, um, basically in regards to the monarchians and Arians. So um, it basically corrected Origen's leanings, right? So Origen leaned into a type of subordinationism that would call the Father very God, and it would note Jesus as the Word God. So there was this distinction that created a di dichotomy that ultimately could cause a problem. So this distinction being something like calling Father capital God and the Son little g God. Um, and you can kind of see that reflected in Arian teaching, right? Because you have God and then you have a God or lesser God. Um, and so the true God from true God is to really put forward this absoluteness of deity that there is no distinction in regards to the divine Godhead. And so after uh, giving you that brief background, let's get into the biblical support. And so really, um, after providing support of Jesus as Lord and as the Son of God, how do we further articulate the deity of Christ in regards to Jesus being true God from true God? Fortunately for us, the Bible is just loaded with the reality that Jesus is deity. Um, now, some of the texts that the early church used in terms of this creed had to deal with Jesus claiming to be the truth and to be the light and to be the life and to be the resurrection, right? Those would ultimately be explained as there is one who has those claims, and that is God. Further, they would point to texts like John 14, 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or um, I and the Father are one, right? Indicating that unity of substance. Within the Gospels, we read uh, that the people are meeting together and being baptized in his name, uh, in Jesus' name, that is. So in Matthew 18, 20, and 28, 19 in particular here is what I have in mind. This formula in the name of the Lord is found in the Old Testament. It's significant. So when these people are meeting together or being baptized in the name of Jesus, this was understood as having regard to the one whose name was spoken. Or whenever it came to baptism, this, this cleansing rite was performed in the name of the God who owns the rite. And that was how baptism was understood in other um, cults in that time. So these rites of meeting and baptism, the referent of the rite is the God who is connected to the rite and the one who is worshipped um, in those circumstances. So whenever it says in his name, they're meeting in his name, or they're being baptized in uh, his name, that's significant here. Um, as it's been discussed extensively in church history, uh, the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, 19 is clearly a Trinitarian understanding of God, where you have the singular name of Yahweh being baptized in the name of and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you see this, uh, this similarity between how Paul, as we talked about before, handles the Shema in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Whenever the Shema says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, Paul splits it into say, um, there is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, indicating this unity, this tri-unity in the Godhead. Matthew 28 being really clear, especially whenever you consider monotheism and this baptismal rite where the God is um, the orientation of this uh, cleansing ritual. Uh, further, we can observe the worship of Jesus um, and you know, this is where we can kind of mix the application here a bit. Modern Arians or Jehovah's Witnesses will often make much about the translation here. They'll say that the Greek term uh, behind the word worship that's often applied to Jesus could also be translated as obeisance in order to imply mere honor or respect given to one who is superior, right? Uh, and there is warrant to this translation. You can't 
dismiss it wholesale. However, uh, what is worth pointing out is that there are clear instances where worship, obeisance, or devotion, however you want to put it, is offered to Jesus in a way that is only and specifically appropriate for the one God. For example, in Matthew 14, 28-32, we find two significant points. First, we see Jesus walking on the water, and of course we had Peter's attempt to do the same. Now, there is a parallel of this in Mark 6, 52 And we all know Jesus walking in the water, right? Um, our understanding of Jesus walking in the water has actually become kind of convoluted in our contemporary settings because there's all these other messages um, kind of thrown around with it, uh, like, you know, have great faith or whatever. But like forgiveness of sins, walking on water has one reference that is a divine, unique prerogative, uh, along with calming the storms, really. And you read this in Job 9.8. Job 9.8 says, God, who alone stretched out the heavens, walking on the sea as if on dry land. And in the Greek Old Testament, you see this parallel with Mark 6 really closely in the original Greek. It's fantastic to look at. But know here that it's God alone who does these activities in Job. And that's really one of the kickers of Job, right? Because God is essentially telling Job, you know, sit down, be quiet, and listen, pay attention, because I'm God and you're not. Um, but in Matthew's account, in verse 33, we read, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So this worshipping, along with the confession, especially linked with divine sonship that we mentioned prior to this episode, um, makes it clear that this goes beyond a simple respect to one who's just superior. Um, and then you link that with Job, and God walks on the sea as if it was on dry land, and there it is. Uh, further, whenever we look at Job 9.8, if we want to pull another connection— we read that God alone stretched out the heavens. But we know that John 1, 1-3 in Colossians points out that Jesus was active in a creation and nothing was made without Jesus. Uh, and this is echoed in texts like Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. But of course we know that Jesus was active in creation. Now, Back to the concept in worship, uh, if we look to Matthew 28, 17, uh, we find Jesus in a post-resurrection state, right? And we read, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Uh, and of course, there's more that can be said here in regards to Jesus' deity, between his knowledge, power, and claims. And, and we're going to be talking about Jesus' deity for a little while here, uh, given all the, the, the creed. Uh, but I want to talk, I'm going to shift gears a little bit to the title, Son of Man, uh, because we talked about Son of God, but the Creed doesn't mention the Son of Man. And there's a lot of uh, titles that we inevitably reach whenever you go through Christology. And Jesus as a Son of Man is a very interesting one that almost seems to be a little bit neglected, yet it's Jesus' favorite title or self-designation in the New Testament. It's mentioned 86 times. And typically, um, it's considered more of an idiom than a title. Uh, Son of Man is a general usage that can mean humanity or human being or some humans and so forth. And so what you find is that Jesus on a basic level um, is a human with certain rights and authority. And Babnik uh, focuses on this aspect um, as well, and that he's not just the son of David, the king of Israel, but the son of man, connected with all humans, giving his life as a ransom for many, that he occupies an utterly unique place among the humans, because of the one who descended from above, he lived in constant communion with the Father and had power to forgive sins to bestow eternal life. Uh, and he could not grasp this power by violence as the Jews expected their Messiah to do, 
but that as the servant of the Lord, he had to suffer and die for his people. And that uh, precisely by taking that road, he would attain the glory of the resurrection and ascension and elevated to God's right hand. And there's something to be said about that. We see Jesus forgiving sins and the linking of the Son of Man being able to have that authority in Matthew 9, 6, and the authority over the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 8. Uh, we also see Son of God linked to some of the Sabbath discussions. But this title often finds itself being neglected in terms of showing Jesus' deity. Uh, but a key text is in Daniel 7. Uh, the text is an overview of God's deliverance going through the world dynasties. Um, and they're designated by animals. And then you find the entrance of one who comes in, quote, like a son of man, end quote, who rises on the clouds and receives ruling authority in verses 13 through 14. And this is significant because in the Old Testament, uh, it is a deity that comes riding in on the clouds. And you can see this in Exodus 14, 20 and 34, 5. And within Daniel, you have this divine human being who receives authority in response to the suffering of God's people. And in this vision, the kingdom of God is victorious over all. So the Son of Man comes in from the clouds of heaven in verse 13, and his reign will last forever in verse 14. And Stephen Willem just summarizes it like this. So we have in this Son of Man who comes from heaven, the promised Son King who will bring covenantal reconciliation between God and man. So with this idea in the Old Testament and in the Second Temple context, uh, whenever we come to the New Testament, this title being used by Jesus for himself over and over again is very telling. So Jesus called himself the Son of Man in many respects, uh, including with his work on the cross, resurrection, and his return. Jesus, as the Son of Man, came and conquered through his work to bring a victory seen in Daniel 7 to his people. Stephen Wellam observes again that as the Son of Man, Jesus self-identifies as both God and man. Jesus uses the title and his humiliation as a man to save the lost in Matthew 8.20 and Mark 10.45 and in his divine authority to forgive sins and his divine power to resurrect the dead in Mark 2.10 and Matthew 17.9. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in his resurrected incarnational ascension to the throne of heaven and in his future return as the King of Heaven in Matthew 19.28 and 24.30. So while there is this aspect of uh, the Son of Man having a link to humanity, the clearest reference to this title in the Old Testament has this idea of a divine man who is king who rules and subjugates all things under him, Jesus. Uh, and so Son of Man is is just as prominent in terms of showing Jesus' deity as Son of God. And it's quite interesting whenever you start thinking about how much Jesus used this title. So lastly, for this episode, we're going to talk on one of my favorite passages that I've talked about before, but I'm going to limit my discussion here for the sake of time. Uh, and that's Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which reads as... Have this in mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited to his own advantage, but emptied himself uh, by taking the form of a slave, having been born in the likeness of men, and found living as a man, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And uh, whenever we talked about Jesus as Lord, we noted that that was actually the divine name, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, and that Jesus, um, it's at the name of Yahweh that every knee shall bow, but here it's at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow. So that's significant right out the gate. 
so this is one of the big Christological passages that you can talk for days about, really. Um, but we're really just going to focus on some of the key aspects here. So the text notes that Jesus was in the form of God, which could be understood as uh, being clothed in the glory of God, which um, you see uh, Jesus being clothed in the glory of God before creation. This is obviously before creation, before the incarnation, minimally. Uh, and Paul notes that Jesus did not consider this equality with God, so there's equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage, right? So he's equal with God, he's clothed in the glory of God before his incarnation, and rather than taking that authority and power and exploiting it, he instead, he takes the form of a slave. So Christ willingly put aside his place of honor and status and instead took on a human nature. So this is the incarnation now. So the drop from God to humanity is like becoming a slave in comparison in regards to prestige and status. And this is actually the only instance where Paul calls Christ a doulos or a slave. Uh, and so it would be no accident to just translate it as slave and see its connection with obedience in the cross in regards to the Greco-Roman world. But we're getting a little bit uh, beyond our scope here. Um, so being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so uh, being found living as a man, Jesus humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So we have God the Son uh, clothed in the glory of God, not using it for his own advantage, even though he has equality with God. He takes off that status and prestige, and he takes on a human nature. Uh, and he took upon himself the greatest humiliation in that time, that's death on a cross. And this was this connection of obedience with slavery. So in effect, you have the eternal Son of God venturing from the highest place to the lowest place for the sake of others in humility. And that's really what this passage is about, the humility of Christ. And Christ took the social world and flipped it on its head, essentially. Um, and then therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And like I said, that's a citation of Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh would have every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Yahweh is the Lord, and here it's applied to Jesus. Jesus is exalted for his servitude, and this ethic is anew for Christians in Philippi, um, given what we see in Matthew 23, 11. But that's more of a sermon application than a um, proper application here, I suppose. And, of course, there's a lot of discussions about uh, kenosis, the emptying of himself. But here we see that that emptying is taking on the form of a slave and divesting himself of status and glory, not his ontology or his functionality as the divine son. And so that's that's really a bigger discussion than what we have here. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about canonic theology later on. But we're going to call that a wrap for this episode of Through Nicaea. I hope it's been a blessing. Um, if you feel so led, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. And I try to give you guys some extra content and stuff like that here and there, supplemental, and you get behind the scenes updates and things of that nature, and I'm going to be doing more for y'all soon. Um, and just as well, um, if you are a listener on iTunes, Spotify, etc., consider leaving us a rating and review if you enjoy the show. And God bless you all, and until next time, have a good one.